Here at Text Talks, we constantly strive to spotlight authentic music trailblazers, which is why we're excited to have Text Talks styled by Ray-Ban this summer, helping us in our pursuit of featuring artists who are not afraid to be their authentic selves. You've got the look. Now come and have some fun with us in the sun. Together, Text Talks and Ray-Ban are saying, if you've got a challenge for us, no matter what it is, you are on. You can't predict the light, but with Text Talks and Ray-Ban, you are always ready to capture it by living each day in the moment. You are on. Define your style at superbulous.com. Welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex, and today I am talking to the lead singer of a pioneering Swedish quartet who combine synth pop, down tempo electronic music, hip hop, and more to create a colorful sound that's earned them a global audience. This band flourish best in smoky and soulful environments, and their electronic works are light and lithe with a real richness that's inherent in the minimalism of their work. I am, of course, talking about Yukimi Nagano from Little Dragon. Yukimi, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Excited to be here. Oh, it's only a pleasure. This is a uh, bucket list interview for me and my researcher as well, who is a gigantic fan and my producers. So we're all fangirling hard on my side. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) But I know that you have been to South Africa a few times to perform. Uh, I think you toured South Africa twice, actually. Uh, in 2012, it was a sold-out world tour. It was part of that. And then in 2015, again. And then both of those times included performances in Cape Town. What are some of the highlights that you still remember from touring South Africa, things that stick out in your mind? Hmm, I think what really sticks out um, and has, you know, stuck out, like, basically just from all the years of touring is just the fans in South Africa have just been so extremely, like, happy and given so much love. And it's just, it's like a dream crowd for a band on stage, really, um, singing along to songs that, you know, usually people don't know the words to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think that's, like... That's really what sticks out in my mind is, is are the shows, you know, um, the people at the shows and just the energy, like, it's crazy. Um, yeah. When I spoke to Passenger and uh, Wesley from the Lumineers, they both said that one of the things that stood out to them about South African audiences is the fact that they don't just know the big hits they know all of the songs from track one to track 10 or whatever it might be. Did you experience that with your shows that, you know, everybody, people who came who were screaming your lyrics back at you knew everything, not just the big ones, but all of the other songs in between? Yeah, exactly. That definitely was like something I became aware of on stage. I was like, wow, they know the words to every song. Um, <laughs> 
it was, I mean, it, yeah, it really is a dream come true, you know, for, for a band to be on stage and just to like feel that, feel so much love. It's, it's like cosmic embrace. It's really um, powerful. <laughs> so I, I don't, I mean, you know, you, we do so many different shows and, and uh, it's just all, all different emotions and categories of shows, you know, so I, we did a festival in, in Philadelphia. I remember where it was like a big festival and it was just, nobody clapped, you know? So you just, oh, you've wow. done so many different shows that, you know, in, in the whole history of the band and uh, still to this day, the, the South African shows like stick out big time, just, you know, that thing in particular, people knowing the words, people screaming, just, I don't know how to express it, but it's, it's, it, it's really, um, it, it's like the, the, it makes you feel like as a band, like you're on top of the world, you know what I mean? Like, okay, this is what it must feel like to be, I don't know, the Rolling Stones or something back in the day, because that's how I feel right now, you know? So it has that energy. South Africans like to make bands that they're absolutely obsessed with feel comfortable. So you have to come back because we, we need you to. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's on my list. Always, always. But, you know, it's crazy to think that Little Dragon has been around for over two decades now. And and I know that all of you met up in high school and then started playing music together in 96. So we're talking like MySpace days. <laughs> and I'm curious yeah. to know about if and how MySpace had an impact on the band's success. Like, did you ever base tours on where you had the largest MySpace following? Like, how were you figuring out where to go back then? Um, well, yeah, I guess it definitely was an alarm in the sense that, you know, when you're in your little sort of bubble in Gothenburg and you're in the studio and, and you're just writing these songs and you're really trying to, you know, um, figure out how to live on your music and, and you release a little, we released a little 12 inch. That was the first thing we did or a seven inch sorry and then uh suddenly we started getting like all these um sort of uh, comments from la i don't know it was just really unexpected i didn't really know what to what to do with it um you know we'd never had a sold out show or yeah hardly anybody you know, would come to our shows, even if we were sort of scrambling tours together. Um, and yeah, I, I guess my state, my space was one of those places where you, where you became aware of, mm -hmm. oh, you know, people know us outside of, uh, the places that we've been to so far and even, you know, uh, our own city. So, uh, yeah. I guess it did kind of open that up in a way. And I don't know, I think it was KCRW started playing us, um, which is a student radio in uh, California. And um, that really made a push. So I think that's what sort of, sort of was the, the whole, started the whole wheel turning in a way. Mm. And what's your relationship like now and the band's relationship like now with social media? Because we're in an age where, you cannot not be on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, how do you engage with these platforms now, considering that we're in a digital age where things are changing so fast? 
yeah, it's highly complex. It's definitely in a subject that uh, reappears often um, within the band. I mean, it's a kind of, it's, it's everything, I guess. I mean, part of me personally, I'm just really, you know, I just feel like it's a serious addiction for most people. <laughs> and it's kind of sad and tragic that we're all just staring into our phones and, um, you know, uh, trying to find ways to, to get everybody, to distract everybody um, in the sort of world of endless distractions. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I also, of course, it's a great way to reach out. And I've, I think one of my favorite things about social media is just that I've had so many direct contacts with other artists through, um, you know, social media where otherwise it'd be an email to a manager to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of like an endless chain before you reach um, the other artists and it kind of becomes a little impersonal. You can become really, you know, you can get to know people and be like, hey, I love your music. Hey, I love your music. And all of a sudden, you know, you're changing phone numbers. And I don't know if that would have been possible if it wasn't for that, uh, for social media in that sense. But uh, so that's my favorite part about it. Mm. But um, yeah, I think it's really hard, really, really difficult to sort of balance balance it out uh, in a way that feels honest because uh you know you i don't know there's something really really kind of exhausting about the whole trying to constantly have content and yeah we have a lot of mixed feelings about it to make a long story short (laughs) yeah i mean to sort of keep up with the musical joneses and like to have to put content out i can imagine that it must be you know a bit of a ball ache at times if if it's if it's not organic and like if someone's telling you to post or you know if you have to post something but but i like what you mentioned in terms of social media's positive side in terms of, you know, people are able to connect with each other easily and, you know, you can DM someone and you can potentially form a collab off the back of that. Like I was thinking, it made me think about uh, when Damon Albon invited you to collaborate on two Gorillaz tracks on Empire Ants and to binge how did that come about like because he didn't drop you a dm because instagram didn't exist so unfortunately that would have been a great story Um, (laughs) no actually it was like you know the the good old-fashioned management to management type of thing Uh, um and honestly you know i wasn't really aware of uh, i was aware of damon alburn and blur but i didn't know gorillas at the time so I was like, I kind of had to have it explained to me, you know, like, no, this is huge. <laughs> you know, this is a big deal. You got to do it. Um, yeah. Uh, so no, I wasn't. I wasn't aware of gorillas for some for some reason that just slipped by me. <laughs> do you feel like your collaboration with them had a significant impact on your future success? It definitely had an impact. It definitely had a push and it, it, you know, reached out to a bigger audience for sure. And, and, and beyond that, just being part of their tour, um, tours, you know, and, and being part of their show, their live show is just so sort of, um, yeah, 
I mean, there's so many different artists involved and so many different guests and it's just, it's, you know, a big production with animations. And mm-hmm. so I think to be part of that was a whole new experience for us from playing little clubs to all of a sudden doing a arena, you know, tour where you're, we were opening, um, parts of of the the plastic beach tour as well so that was it just kind of widened our world world in in many ways um yeah so uh, i think definitely it must have it must have you know it's a a huge huge uh, project so i think it must have but it's hard to know like exactly in what way (laughs) Mm -hmm. statistically how many more people did we reach i don't know but talk to me about those early years after you dropped your first three albums, the desire to keep on making music and to stay relevant. Like, did you feel the pressure that you had to constantly be touring and releasing music? Or were you guys a bit more chilled after the the release of Ritual Union? No, not chilled at all. Definitely <laughs> felt pressure. Um, I still feel pressure sometimes, but, you know, it's probably more in my mind. Uh, but yeah, I just, I think that, um, you know, just being a highly ambitious person and in a, in a world and kind of a music, the music business is just so, um, pressured as well. Um, there's that feeling that, you know, you got to catch, catch every opportunity. But I think there was a point where, um, you sort of had to also, just slow down and 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 uh, catch your sanity in a way because <laughs> it was just moving moving too fast. You know, we we uh, we were doing so many shows at at one point that you know I felt like when we were going through the sort of going through the schedule of the year, like my heart started racing. I got so like anxious about having to travel that much. You know, as something that you'd think um, would be just a fun fun thing that it'd be mm-hmm. like fun news like yeah you're going to be touring you'll be in brazil and then you go here and then you fly to hong kong and then you do those shows but actually really like stressed me big time um and i felt like i was never home and i never got to settle and um yeah sometimes out of my control which you know it shouldn't it, it um certainly um wasn't in a way but it felt that way sometimes so how have things progressed and how do you feel now when you look at the year schedule and you see all of the things that you have to do and especially if i mean pre-pandemic when there were all of these places to travel to do you feel like you got used to it um (laughs) I, 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 you mean used to being home from the pandemic yeah. <laughs> now? Yes. <laughs> actually, you know, my, my life has just been so much travel because my family's been spread out. So I've actually always uh-huh. been like jumping around because I moved when I was little from, from Sweden to Japan to the States and back. Um, so I, it's kind of been, um, uh, a feeling that I've, I've had since my childhood that I've wanted things to sort of land and, and become grounded. Um, so actually my dream has always been to uh, not go anywhere <laughs> in a way. I mean, <laughs> I love doing shows and I, I, you know, 
But the traveling part of it, I guess, I've just done so much uh, traveling that if somebody said to me, Kimi, you were never, ever going to be able to go anywhere. I'll be like, oh, lovely. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm happy to just write music, but it's it's a hard balance because, you know, I love being on stage and, you know, there's some press, practical aspects of that. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that now, now we've just learned to, uh, I guess, say no and not feel, feel bad, um, which is a privilege, you know, in many ways, because, uh, I mean, there are literally no guarantees that there's going to be another show, but, you know, uh, I guess you also have to just sort of, um, have some kind of balance, I guess, mm-hmm. between, between, uh, live shows and, and, you know, what your soul needs, especially now I have two kids, you know, it's full on trying to write an album and be a mother and, um, tour. Yeah. It's a lot on my plate. <laughs> no, you mentioned that you're very used to traveling because your family is spread all over the world. And I know that you were born in Sweden to a American Swedish mother and a Japanese father, and you spent most of your life in Sweden. But then, like you said, you also lived in California for a little bit uh, with your grandmother, Eleanor Brown, whom you've got her middle name. But I'm curious about your relationship with Japan. Have you ever lived there? Do you visit there regularly or at least pre-COVID? Yeah, I lived there when I was um, 10, uh, 10, to, 10 to 11 uh, for a year. And then I'd, I'd be there uh, in the summer times and visit my mom when she when she lived there. But yeah, my, my relationship to Japan has kind of changed um, through the years. And initially it was, um, you know, uh, my childhood memories are not uh, the most you know um, pleasant yeah i think that there's something about sort of um the japanese culture that is super exciting when you're coming as a visitor and you know you're probably going to tokyo to shibuya and you're you know i mean there's so much that's crazy and fun and exciting to see and experience but like when you're living there in in the kind of um in a family that is Japanese, well, you know, it's mixed, obviously my mom's American, but uh, it's, it can be, there are just aspects that are, I think uh, Japanese culture is very sort of still very sexist in many ways. You know, it's very slow when it comes to sort of (laughs) the domestically, I mean, violence is quite common uh, between uh, marriages and stuff like that so I I just I think that for me uh I just felt that I was excited to experience Japan when I was there doing shows when in my early 20s coming to Japan and doing shows was like completely different from my childhood Mm -hmm. memories there Uh, I could be a visitor they take me out to great food Uh, you know it was a lot of fun um you know go to great clubs and stuff like that and have fun but um it wasn't that whole sort of being 10 years old, having to act grown up, have you done your homework? You know, it was just a whole different, I was robbed my freedom in a way Mm -hmm. in Japan, uh, the freedom that I had growing up in Sweden. Japan is one of the places that 
I would love to go to. I've spoken about the, that a lot on this podcast, especially with different people who have traveled there and toured there. When I go, because I will, what is the one place that I need to go to, uh, city that I need to go to, and what is the one thing that I need to do in that city? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure what city, but I definitely say that you need to try onsen, Japanese hot spring. Um, what's it? What's it called? How to onsen? It's a onsen. Japanese on, a hot spring. Okay. And, uh, you kind of stay in a in a. It's almost like they usually have like a bed and breakfast dish. Uh, there are different, obviously, different styles of it, but mm-hmm. the more traditional styles. Uh, and they have a, some of them have hot springs outside, and I've been to uh, onsen outside in the winter, where it's just snow is falling down, and you can sit in this uh, turquoise, you know, uh, oh. water, and uh, drink some sake or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds that. that sounds incredible. That's going on my to do list. Yeah, and then when I get there, I'm gonna be like. Yukimi from Little Dragon told me to come here. (laughs) (laughs) But from Japan to Sweden, I want to go back and I I want to talk about the studio uh, that you set up where you recorded most, if not all of your albums. But it wasn't only a studio. It was where everybody lived on the first floor of this building. And I want to know how important it was for you guys to have this space as your own to create from. Because I can imagine it must have been a very symbolic place for you. Yeah, definitely. I don't know like how we were. I mean, at the time, everybody was kind of having their own home studio, um, which could be just like a computer and a microphone, literally. But um, we sort of started just like that, you know, just basically finding a... Uh, ways to to record stuff um, easily with our uh, computers and uh, you know we had low MPC uh, so it was basically just like apartment but then everybody had sort of their own corner where they recorded music and then that corner just started taking over and becoming bigger <laughs> and um, finally you know we moved out and we kept the space and we sort of built, um, uh, we built the walls to, to be able to, you know, handle uh, live recorded drums and stuff like that. So soundproofed the rooms, basically. So have you kept the space? Do you still use it for recording? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, we've moved upstairs. So we have the upstairs room now. Um, which is basically redone, but downstairs we've kept that and uh, as well. And we have a, a friend of uh, mine who uses that as a dance studio, and uh, and uh, we rent it out to some different friends. So we still have the space, but <laughs> for nostalgic purposes. But like, how in your face is it when you are recording? living with all of these people in one space obviously now as you've grown up and the living situation changes and you know you start building your own families and having kids and things change but back then did it ever just get a bit too much yeah definitely it definitely got too much and I think you know there are definitely a lot of fights uh, but I think that's common right when you live Mm. with when you have roommates (laughs) but um 
I mean, it was, I don't think anybody could live like that now. Um, but at the time it just, it made sense. And it, you know, that's kind of what everybody was doing. Um, but there were a lot of parties. Um, I know Huacan had like his, uh, group of friends who were all playing like folk music. And I remember coming home to the studio and the one room was like, there was like folk dance stuff going on. Google, <laughs> drunk on red wine. You know, there's like, <laughs> or, or I came home another time and Eric's, um, you know, uh, friend, uh, who played in a raggy band was, you know, uh, just us passed out on the sofa. I mean, it's just, it was crazy, but it was fun. <laughs> you know, we mentioned earlier, we were talking about MySpace and how things have changed so much and social media, but, you know, the, the advent of digital technologies has also meant that songwriting has changed as well. And I'm curious to know when you're writing songs, do you still take a handwritten notebook approach or how are you creating your music when you, when you are in the zone? Uh, kind of both. Uh, I try, you know, it depends. Sometimes I do write on my phone, like for example, if I'm on the bus or something and I suddenly, you know, get, uh, I'm listening to a track and I, I get inspired and I just write it down on my phone. Uh, other times I have like 100 notebooks spread out all over, just like a trail of where I've been. Um, so I just <laughs> randomly open them and start writing. Um, and try, I try to write, uh, in one notebook, but it's just so far it's, it, it doesn't seem to be, uh, something that I'm capable of, but <laughs> usually I love writing on paper. I mean, I love writing by hand and, uh, that's that's what I try to do. But sometimes now, you know, you have a, you need to look up synonyms or stuff like that. So I'll go to my phone. But there is always that that possibility of, you know, you take up your phone and then suddenly you go in and look at something else or you answer a message or um, somebody calls you in the middle of it. So for for focus sake, I try to keep my phone out of the writing process as much as I can. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am first and foremost a journalist and I find it very hard to create when my phone is even on. So anytime I have to do any writing, I always put my phone on flight mode because <laughs> mm -hmm. it's the only way that I can get into the zone to like really have my entire attention span be focused into what I'm writing. Otherwise I feel like my attention split and then what comes out isn't necessarily good. That's how I feel. Yeah, well, it's a serious addiction. Like, it really is a serious addiction. Like, I was talking just to my uh, man about it today. I was like, you know, it's crazy how I took up Instagram, I looked at it, I turned it off, and literally, like, two seconds after, I put it on again. I opened it up again. And it wasn't even something that I was, like, choosing to do. It was just, like reflex you know your hand just does it you're just like your fingers are on your phone and suddenly so I it just I think for me I just feel like oh that's where the love-hate relationship like, I have my own <laughs> personal relationship with you know social media and all that stuff and 
I find it kind of, you know, tragic. Like, is this, is this where we're at? You know, yeah. whether it's the way you spend time with people or suddenly there, I remember this one time on tour, we were at a restaurant and I looked across the room and there was this family. It was literally the dad on his cell phone, looking down the mom on her cell phone. The kid was on an iPad and the big kid was on his phone. And it just made me so sad. Like, you know, I mean, I don't know. That's just not how I would like to um, spend time with people I love. And I know that there are times when that's me, you know what I mean? So um, having that personal approach and also feeling like you you sort of have to, you want to say, hey, guys, you know, we're still here. We're here. We're making music. We got new things. You know, don't forget about us because that's basically the feeling that the music industry gives you is like, Take your chance, take your opportunity, you know, go, go, go. Um, because people, people don't have, you know, the attention span anymore. Um, so be in their faces, uh, you know, and that it's hard to balance that out. <laughs> I haven't really figured it out yet. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about your sixth album, New Me, Same Us that was released pretty much as the world went into lockdown. Um, but before your official album drop, you released Are You Feeling Sad? Uh, featuring Kali Uchis. And listening to those lyrics, it felt like you'd written the song for what the world was collectively experiencing at the time. And a lot of the album feels like that as well. But where were you emotionally, spiritually, when you were writing that album? Um, I think I was all over the place, but, um, I was definitely through the process of writing that album. Uh, I had definitely made some big changes in my life. And, uh, I think that there were a lot of big changes within the band. And, uh, you know, there was that kind of epiphany where it's like, you know, we're still here, but, uh, life is constantly changing and we're here in new form, you know, we're here in, and um, with with sort of a new approach, and my life was uh, just different. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there were some really, really big changes. I think it, that song in particular um, was sort of written on the fly. It was very spontaneous. But sometimes I think that when uh, when you do that, it also becomes like sort of um, uh, almost like you're just connecting with with something higher than yourself. Um, so it's almost like, you know, it's, it's out of my control and it just happened and it feels like it was meant to be, um, but it wasn't necessarily like a conscious, very controlled writing where I'm reflecting on what's going on. It just happened. And I, I felt the same way afterwards, like, wow, this this was totally... The right timing for the song. I feel like I feel like the title of the album, "New Me, Same Us," speaks to how, even though we're constantly changing, there's this essential part of us that will always remain the same. W- would I be right in assuming that it also refers to the band returning to the way that maybe you used to create music back in the day? Exactly what you were just talking about. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, that just, just having been together for so, so long and, you know, realizing that, wow, this is our sixth album. Like we're still here. Um, we're still struggling with each other. We're still having difficult conversations and fighting and, you know, um, but we, we still, we still love this and we still love what we do and we still love making music together. Um, so there, there definitely was that, that, uh, sort of feeling within the band that, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's find our playfulness. I think every album is kind of like a reaction on the last album as well. Mm-hmm. You just go through different phases and sometimes you, you go full circle, like you go back to something that you maybe when you were there, you had to break away from, um, but uh yeah I think that I think that the the album somehow just I I think realizing that every accepting that everything changes also because uh, there's this time where I just thought that we were forever going to be the up and coming band you know everyone say you guys are up and coming you're the up and coming you're the next thing you're the up and coming band and then suddenly like uh, wait why are people not saying that we're up and coming anymore <laughs> Are we not up and coming anymore? Um, <laughs> so uh, there definitely was um, sort of that embrace, embracing the changes um, that, are, that are bound to happen and enjoying that. Yeah, I mean, nobody could have embraced lockdown. Nobody saw that that was that was coming. And I've spoken to many musicians after 17 months of severely affected touring schedules and infrequent gigging. And they, they've mentioned losing their performance stamina. And I wanted to know, well, from you, is it the same for writing? Like if you don't write music for a while, do you have to sort of dust off the cobwebs and relearn a sort of way of writing? Or is it like riding a bike? Um, I, I don't know. Like I would probably say that for me personally, it's about being one with the feelings with, you know, feeling like you suck when you're not (laughs) used to feeling like you suck, then you become overwhelmed by it. You know, it's like, Oh my gosh. But when you write all the time, you know, that that's just, that's the cycle. That's the process. You know, you write something and it's the beginning of something and then you just keep going um, and you become sort of not too uh, scared of, of that feeling because you recognize it. But if you're not in that cycle, then it, it kind of grabs, grabs you and it feels a bit overwhelming. So I think in that sense, it always grabs me when I haven't written for a while. Um, probably cause you're rusty as well, but, mm-hmm. uh, but Otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fine because I, for me, it's just about getting the routine and, you know, you slip out of your routine, whether that's working out or, or writing or whatever it is, it's just a little bit difficult in the beginning. But, um, I think at this point I've had breaks, uh, before, you know, just having, having my first child was a break, um, from writing. So, uh, I've I've sort of gone through that process now and I know that it's difficult. <laughs> but uh it definitely doesn't feel nice, put it that way. Mm-hmm. 
During lockdown in South Africa, there was a period of about three months where we couldn't leave our houses, which mm. for me was quite detrimental to my psyche because I find that the best time for me to just clear my mind and sort of center myself is in the morning when I take my dog for a walk. Right. And I read... And I'm very interested in this, that you clear your head by taking a walk through a graveyard. Tell me more about this, Yukimi. Uh, yeah, I used to do that. I've moved now, but I lived right next to a graveyard and I'd take walks there. And I find it very humbling to uh, walk in a graveyard and to think about death um, on the daily because I think we do so much where we're trying to avoid um avoid talking about those things that we're really scared of. And um, I think for me, it just always made me feel um, deeply grateful for being alive and just sort of gave my, started my, like giving me some depth <laughs> from the beginning, like, oh yeah, you know, screw those little things. Um, they're probably not that important at the end of the day, you know, I'm here. And what do I really want to say? What do I really want to write about? Um, but it was kind of coincidental, coincidental that the graveyard was there, but I really enjoyed walking in it. <laughs> the reason that I brought that up specifically was because I, I think that graveyards are quite beautiful. I don't find them creepy at all, like some people yeah. do. And when I went to Paris um, my first time, I went to the Pierre Lachaise cemetery and it was in the middle of November and it was so cold and I had a small bottle of vodka in my coat and that was the only way I got through it because I couldn't feel my fingers but wow. walking through it because it's so monumentally big just almost exactly like what you said I found this very eerie sense of peace and calm mm. and serenity and I felt very grounded and in touch with myself it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been and experiences I've ever had. Have you ever visited any other cemeteries when you've been in other countries? Uh, yeah, I have a vivid memory of the uh, graveyards in Japan um, because people usually put, you know, little cups of tea and food out, which isn't always good because birds come. <laughs> so we obviously exist in a time now where singles are the way that people create and consume music. But just to listen to your album from top to toe, you can tell that you were very specific about a, a track listing and about the journey that that album sends you on from start to finish. How is the journey and meaning affected on your remixes EP that you released last month, bringing in other artists like FKJ and Moses Sumney, such different musicians? Um, well, I think it was really a collaboration with, with the label as well, finding um, artists and in the midst of sort of uh, making new music, you it's so easy as an artist that you're like, your head is completely in like the next thing. So it's almost like even if uh, when once music is released, you're like, it, it almost feels old to you, but... Uh, uh, so remix is kind of fun because that way it's just, you know, interpretations from other people. And uh, it's with music that kind of feels old, but becomes something completely different. And um, I just love the whole 
I, I mean, I love dance music, basically. Uh, that's another sort of memory that I have from South Africa, just, you know, going out and, and hearing house music and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, so, so just hearing people's versions is always refreshing. And I think that it was just really about getting a, getting a sort of little package that felt like people would be able to dance to these songs and play them, play them in the clubs and sort of get a variety of different, different styles together. If you think, if you enjoyed house music when you were in South Africa, you need to come back because now we have Amapiano and we have Gom and we have all of these different subgenres of electronic music that you're going to absolutely love when you come back. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I can't, I can't, I, I can't think of anywhere where, where the music is, music scenes just felt so bright, vibrant. And that could be just, you know, in my experience, just hearing somebody with their car open blasting, music <laughs> i don't know it was just uh, yeah and i remember we played um a show where it, the, the place became a club afterwards and just people dancing and enjoying the music in a way that i don't know it was just very elevating um i'll never forget that so i'm definitely 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 up for that <laughs> music is and, integrated uh, in our DNA here in South Africa. But Yuki, mm. I just wanted to say thank you very much for joining me on Text Talks. Your, you. your music has soundtracked countless hours of my life. And I speak for everybody when I say that we cannot wait to have you back in South Africa. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, well, it's our favorite place, you know, to come and play. And not to just sound flattering, but um, I just love coming to South Africa. And, and I'm really looking forward to coming back. For sure. We staying under yellow light, looking down, against the white. Imagine us 30 years from now, in the same chair, staring up, dusty songs. I remember most little club bread, precious little toes, hearing me change one in shape. Hope it did, never will it break. Let's go tell the world we know what we have. Crazy how you look like water. Crazy how you look like water. With a mission between. Crazy how you look like water.
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Text Talks. Shout out to Little Dragon for joining me in studio. Text Talks is coming to you from the amazing Kaya Creative Studios at Neighborhood in beautiful Cape Town, South Africa. Shout out to Tom's, the only music store for keeping us connected. From me, your host, Tex, my producers, Jonathan Ings and Matt Lewitz, and our researcher, L. Clapper. Catch you on the flip side.